You're about to hear a Lord's Day sermon that was preached at Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. This sermon comes from a series called That You May Believe. In this series, we take a long journey through the gospel according to John to discover who Jesus is and why it matters. We hope you enjoy this audio. Hear the word of the Lord from John 3, 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. um, Hey, everybody. My name's Sam. I'm pastor here. uh, And you just watched me cry in public, so that's fun. Um... We've been in the Gospel of John. I'm going chapter by chapter. Um, we've not gotten so far yet. We're just starting chapter three. Um, we've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, studying the Gospel of John. And John has a very specific purpose uh, in which he writes. He wants to write to people who have not had the privilege of seeing Jesus with their own eyes, uh, the people that didn't have the privilege of witnessing the signs and the wonders that Christ has done so that we would hear of them, and with the eyes of our heart, we would see and believe and have life in Jesus' name. And today we come to John chapter 3, and in this passage, we get to listen in on one of the most important conversations of all time as Jesus explains how one becomes a Christian. In other words, Jesus explains how you can become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now, this transfer of citizenship is much different than, say, moving from Illinois to Iowa or Iowa to Illinois, right? It requires more than a U-Haul, more than a landing spot, more than a missional community to pack the the U-Haul for you and then unload it, the the whole deal. It requires more than that. Something profound must take place for one to transfer their citizenship from the kingdom of the earth to the kingdom of heaven, 
And so as we listen in, we, we get to see Jesus explain first who gets to enter the kingdom of God and how this citizenship is acquired. Now, as we look at this passage, um, it's helpful to realize that this conversation, the two parties involved in this conversation, you've got Jesus um, and Nicodemus, and I'll explain more about Nicodemus here in a second, um, could not be more different from one another. Um, we, we've had the opportunity to meet Jesus already. Um, John's testified that Jesus is a Nazarene. He's from the land of Nazareth, which is a pretty obscure place to live. Um, one of his disciples in meeting Jesus or hearing of Jesus, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? So Nazareth doesn't have a great reputation of being this place where they crank out the elites. Rather, Jesus is a Nazarene who is a furloughed carpenter, spent years working with his dad, who is currently unemployed. Uh, he's poor because he don't got a job. And Jesus carries no civil power. On the other hand, you have Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is what society would look at and say, this is a great man. This is the man that our children should aspire to be like. This is the man that we're jealous of because he has got it going for us. So first we see, um, it's, it tells us first, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he's a Pharisee. So this means that Nicodemus is not just a spiritual person, not just somebody who has devoted his life to the study of God's word, but he has uh, rose through the ranks and he has uh, achieved a status. It was hard to become a Pharisee. This was like, there's a threshold that few people got up into. Now, not only that, not only was a Pharisee, but he was a ruler of the Jews. So he entered into this elite category of people, this, the Pharisees. But then on top of that, he's a ruler. So the cream of the crop. He, he's, he's gotten into the upper echelon of the religious world. Now, not only are there religious implications or spiritual implications about this, but in, in um, Israel at the time, there was also political power tied to the spiritual authority. So the people of God had been ruled, uh, and at this point, um, the Romans have come in and, and they've exerted the, the Roman authority over the people of God. But up to that point, before God's people got swept into uh, the authority, underneath the authority of pagan nations, they had very much been autonomous. They had been ruled by the word of God. They had set up their own sort of, of government. They had kings that had gone, and some were good, some were bad, most of them were bad. Um, but they had this, this connection between spiritual authority and civil authority. And so you see that Nicodemus is spiritually strong leader. He's entered, uh, he occupies a space as a civil leader. Um, there's tradition that says that Nicodemus, not only that, but comes from a line of warriors. That his name um, indicates that he came from a certain family who would have been very, very wealthy. And, and actually, later on in John's gospel, this, this reality of, of Nicodemus' wealth is attested to. So you have a, a spiritual leader, a civil leader. He's wealthy. He's got status. He's got clout. On one hand, you have Jesus, who's a nobody. And on the other hand, you have Nicodemus, who's a somebody. Now, in a typical situation, you would have the nobody, right? Your common peasant approach the somebody and ask for some sort of spiritual guidance, usually stroking their ego in order to get that. Oh, teacher, you're so wise and so great. Would you please tell me how to, da, 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 you know, like it would be kind of that. You're at the mercy at that, at that somebody. 
But here in this conversation, we see the rules flipped. We see Nicodemus, who's the somebody, who had watched Jesus, had seen the many signs, which are not documented in John's gospel. But if you get to the end of John's gospel, chapter 19 or 20, John says, listen, if we were to take time to document all of Jesus's signs and miracles, uh, we would fill the earth. The whole world would be filled with paper stacked to the heavens because there was just so much Jesus did. So Nicodemus saw some of these signs that Jesus did. And as this person with cloud, as, as having some sort of status there's a bit of embarrassment for this guy, this somebody to approach this nobody. And so what he does, he comes to Jesus, this nobody, in the night. In the, in the veil of darkness, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and kind of gives him the treatment that Nicodemus would typically receive himself. Look at this, verse one. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So when Nicodemus looks at Jesus, he says, I've seen your signs. It's very evident that you're just not your normal dude, right? There, there's something special about you. You've come from God. Now, he's not thinking in the sense where Jesus came from heaven. And now he's thinking more in the sense of the prophets, how God was with the prophets and gave them a word. And so there's a sense of that the prophets were speaking on behalf of God, were performing miracles on behalf of God. And so Nicodemus has the same point of reference. This is what he's referring to. And so he comes to Jesus, kind of strokes his evil, evil ego, no evil, strokes his ego and says, we can tell your teacher. He calls him rabbi. Now, there is a lot of debate about the nature of this conversation. Um, some people look at this and say, ah, it seems like Nicodemus is being friendly. He, he's executing some sort of humility to come to Jesus and ask and, and give him questions. Um, and other commentators say this is actually pretty combative. We don't understand how combative this thing is because of social norms and things of that nature. And so what is the nature of this conversation? Is, is Nicodemus a genuine inquirer or is he, along with the rest of the Pharisees, combative towards Jesus? And I think it's a little bit of both. I think the motives of Nicodemus are a bit warped and twisted or, or it's, it's been tangled with good and bad and he's just trying to figure it out. On one hand, we see Nicodemus use a respectful title for Jesus. He, he calls him rabbi, teacher. He acknowledges that he has some sort of capability of revealing God's word, God himself in a way that not everybody else does. And then there's this honor shown in the fact that Nicodemus, rather than sending some of his little, his minions to come and inquire from Jesus, Nicodemus goes himself. So it, that, those are gestures of respect, of honor. Yet, at the same time, when Jesus is responding to Nicodemus's questions, it appears as if Nicodemus gives these eye roll kind of answers. Jesus gives responses, come on, come on, Jesus. Are you kidding me? That is the most absurd thing I've ever heard. And on top of that, he comes at nighttime. Now, this, this is uh, uh, one of the big pieces of debate. This is the big thing that makes people wonder, what are Nicodemus's motives here? If he really wanted to honor Jesus, he would go to him during the day. But instead, he goes at night. Now, people some make excuses. Maybe Nicodemus is too busy. After all, he's a very important guy. Maybe he's too busy to come to the day. He's carving time in the evening. Maybe he's embarrassed. He doesn't want people to see him come and approach Jesus and ask these questions. And, and uh, it's hard to know exactly why Nicodemus chooses the night, but we can understand why John 
depicts this happening at night. If you go back to John chapter one in the prologue, the prologue we talked, the first, what is it, the first 19, 18 verses of the Gospel of John, um, the, the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John is the distilled version of the rest of the Gospel. So everything that happens in the Gospel of John can be traced back to what goes on here in the very beginning. And if you look at John 1, verses 9 through 11, John is showing this, this representation of light against darkness, this contrast between dark and light. He says this, the true light, which gives light to everyone, he's speaking of Jesus, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, right, the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so right here, what we're seeing here, this passage is an expansion of these few verses in John chapter 1. Nicodemus, this darkness shows the darkness of not knowing. Nicodemus coming to Jesus, who is the light of the world, to inquire. And so you see this dualism. You see this binary of the light of the, of the world, who is Jesus, and before him stands the dark, the unknowing, the clouded heart. Now, if things had not transpired, or we've not been told um, what we were told last week as we finished up um, John chapter 2, where it tells us that Jesus knows all people, he knows, he knows what's in man. He knows the heart of man. If we didn't have that conversation last week, then the conversation in John chapter three would take an unexpected turn. But as I said last week, that passage was meant to set us up for what's about to transpire. So as Nicodemus comes to Jesus, Jesus knows his heart already. There's no guessing, there's no speculation, there's no, you know, Jesus has, doesn't need to rely on intuition or a hunch in his gut to know what's happening. Jesus knows this man that comes to him. And as Nicodemus comes, he flatters Jesus, surely you are a son of God. Or excuse me, he does not say that yet. He says, uh, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, um, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Now, here's where the unexpected turn is, because it seems like it goes from flattery and then Jesus says something about the kingdom of heaven. And you're like, why, where did this come from? It's because he saw his heart. Now listen, Jesus says in verse three, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, whenever Jesus says truly, truly, I say to you, when the truly, truly is repeated, it's meant to grab your attention. It's like when the teacher says, listen up class, and then gives this sort of instruction that follows. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus, knowing the intentions, knowing what Nicodemus is coming to really inquire about, he tells him, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. This is the thing that Nicodemus is most concerned about. Nicodemus, this religious man, wants to be in the kingdom of heaven. Church, we should want to be in the kingdom of heaven, the glory of God, there for us to enjoy for eternity. But Jesus says, listen, that, that, that place is sweet where God dwells with his people. But in order to 
enter into the kingdom, for your citizenship to be granted, you must be born again. Now, this word born again, if you, if you have, read in the ESV Bible, there's probably a little footnote there. It says born again, or it says born from above. This idea of a rebirth of some sort. You must be born again. This is the only way to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's a tendency for Christians when we hear this, it sounds very narrow. It seems very exclusive. And our, our, our secular friends, our, our maybe, maybe you've got Muslim friends or you've got other kinds of friends from different persuasions. And you're like, well, if, if this is the only way, then these people, they're not getting in. And there's a tendency for us to, to see the exclusivity that there's one gate, there's one way, and to start to adopt the seeds of universalism and think, oh, well, there's many ways to God. This religion, they, you know, it's, you put up against Christianity and, and the morals are pretty similar. Like what, what's to keep them from getting in if they're doing the same things that Christians are doing? And there's this tendency for us to, to even be embarrassed when Jesus says, unless you're born again, I want to challenge you that if you find yourself ashamed of the word of God, if you find yourself making excuses for what God's word says, it's time for you to check your heart. If you're trying to get God to say things that you would prefer instead of the things that God has already said, you're, you're busy making an idol out of God. You're, you're, you're making God into your own image according to your own likeness. Christians, it is essential for us to listen to what Jesus says and to live like it's true. That this is the only way to enter the kingdom of heaven is to be born again. Now, what does that do for us in relationship to these other people who, who are yet not yet believers? These people who are trapped in the lies of secularism, who, who are trapped in, in the lies of Mormonism or uh, Islam or, or Hindu or whatever it would be. What, what should our posture, our attitude towards them be? Instead of making excuses and trying to defend or, or, or <clears throat> make a, um concessions so that these people would be more accepted. What we need to do is proclaim the way in which they get to enter the kingdom of God, which is to be born again. There's this new zeal for us to be heralds of the gospel so that they too can gain the future in which Jesus affords us in believing in his name. Jesus says the only way you can enter the kingdom of heaven is to be born again from above. And and just to be clear, Jesus, so, so you don't miss this, Jesus repeats this three times in this passage. You must be born again. Now to us, if you've been around the church for a while, the, the language of born again um, is not too unfamiliar. It's not bizarre language for us for a couple of reasons. One, um, hopefully it's not unfamiliar because you, you've been around solid Bible teaching for a while. 
and you've heard preachers and Sunday school teachers and catechism teachers and your parents talk about the need to be born again. So solid Bible teaching helps it so that this is not an unfamiliar concept, but there's this other thing that even people who have not had that benefit of that thorough Bible teaching where they, culturally speaking, have heard the usage of the term born again Christians, which was popularized in the 70s. This swept through pop culture, talking about born-again Christians. We've had some presidents who have called themselves born-again Christians. And so this had brought this name to the, to the forefront of the cultural um, imagination. But for Nicodemus, this is not an unfamiliar, or this is an unfamiliar concept. For Nicodemus to hear Jesus say, to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. This is a wild idea. This is, this cooks his noodle. Nicodemus, he's so, I mean, his response is probably laced in some, um, in irony, but the fact that he says this out loud tells us that he's very confused by this. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born again when he's, he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus didn't understand this, and he was confused by this idea of being born again for two reasons. One, there's the physical act of being born again. He literally says, how does this work? Secondly, which is actually the most pressing reason why he's confused about this need to be born again, is because he believes as a Jew, he's already earned the kingdom of heaven. That he's already entitled to God's kingdom as a, not just a Jew, but a high-ranking Jewish leader as a wealthy Jewish man and as a revered civil leader. He has rose through the ranks. And so, and even we saw this last week when we talked about um, it's God who looks at the heart, man looks to the external appearance. He has hit all of the external markers in the eyes of man. And he's like, well, what else is there for me to do? I've, I've already, I've punched my ticket. I, the kingdom of God is as good as mine. But Jesus says, no, it's not, Nicodemus. It's yours if you are born again. Now, this, this was a common attitude, not just among these high-ranking wealthy Jews, but amongst all Jews in general. Um, well, especially the wealthy Jews. They thought that the kingdom of God was their birthright. This is a presumption that gets exposed in Matthew 3, verse 9. Um, and, and Jesus and, and John the Baptist are around, and you've got the Pharisees around. And, and he says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. They, they thought because Abraham is our great, 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 great granddaddy to the whatever degree, we then get the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, do not presume on the kingdom based on your genetics. Now, this stuns Nicodemus to hear that the kingdom of God may not be in his future unless he's born again. And so then Jesus goes on to explain what it means to be born again. Let's look at verses five through seven. Jesus answered, truly, truly, there you see it again, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Now, we need to break this down just a little bit here because Jesus is really saying a lot here. There's a lot going on. And one of the first things that Jesus does is he, he differentiates a physical birth from a spiritual birth. He says, your physical birth and your spiritual birth are not the same thing. And you see this clearly in verse six. So that means to be born a Jew, or in our case, to be born into a Christian home does not guarantee you the kingdom of God. Now it gives you an incredible leg up. If you're raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord, if you're taught the ways of the Lord, if the padea of the Lord, if, if the enculturation, the gospel is, is just um, reaches into every facet of your life, I mean, what an incredible, I mean, what an inheritance, kids, to grow up in a Christian home. You don't understand. I didn't understand how good we had it. But to be born into a Christian home does not guarantee you the kingdom of God because Jesus says you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. You have a spiritual birth. Now this language of being born again, theologians call this regeneration. Regeneration. Um, to be born again. To generate means to make or to produce. And in Psalm 133, we see that it's God who knits you together in your mother's room. And, and today, uh, yesterday was the one-year anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And thank God that there are, are laws that are being guarded, uh, put in place to guard life that God has knit together in his mother's womb. Praise the Lord for that. God generates life in the womb in the physical sense. And as, glory, as a, glorious as that is, to have God himself knit you together in your mother's womb. We are all born into sin, as David says, that, that we were conceived in sin, that our first father, Adam, rebelled against God, and because of his rebellion, we have inherited a spiritually compromised state, that we are born into sin. Now, this is one of the things that the apostle Paul testifies to in Ephesians chapter two. Right away, he says that you're born alive, you have, you have physical life, but you're born spiritually dead. Look at Ephesians chapter two, verse one. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, the bad spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so Paul says, you're dead men walking, physically alive, spiritually dead. So if this is how we are generated, if this is how we enter into the world as, as dead men walking, to be regenerated, to be regenerate, is to be remade or reproduced, to be made anew, spiritually speaking. It is where God takes action. It's this recreative action to enhance the state in which we entered the world. So he takes this fearfully and wonderfully made creature. You, fearfully and wonderfully made, yet broken and fallen from sin. And God looks at this corruption of the heart and he says, I am going to remake this heart. I'm going to reform this heart. And this is what he, if you keep reading Ephesians 2, it says, keeps, keeps explaining this. Uh, verse, where would I leave off? He says, um, you were dead in your sins, Finally, the prince of the power of the air, 
among whom we all lived in the passions according to our flesh. This is, this is the fallen state of man, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind that were by nature children of wrath. That by nature, being born in sin, your allotment is not the kingdom of heaven, but of God's wrath, like the rest of mankind. But check this out, verse four. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one would boast. Now this this goes in the face of Nicodemus. He's, I, I've, look at what I've accomplished. He's using his merit to show, this is why I'm deserving. I'm born a Jew. I've, I've risen through the ranks. This is why I deserve the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and what Paul says here is, it's not because of works, but it's by the grace of God, so that no man may boast. In verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Now, this is, this is speaking of the spiritual recreation of regeneration. This is not the, this is, we already saw that in the beginning, God created all things. Jesus was there. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. All things came into existence because of Jesus. That's true. But what Paul is talking about here in verse 10 is this recreation that happens through the gospel, this regeneration that takes place, this spiritual rebirth where God remakes us spiritually. And this is the type of people, this is the only kind of people that get to enter the kingdom of God. Now this means that the only kind of Christian that exists is a born-again Christian. They're not Christians and then born-again Christians. It's, it'd be like saying um, a three-sided triangle. It's already that. By definition, that's what a triangle is. To be a Christian means to be born again. Now, you can take the name of Jesus in vain like we saw last week. But to be a true Christian is to be born again. Now, how does that take place? Well, let me first tell you that the, the recreation that takes place in being born again is so thorough, so profound, it's as if you become a whole new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Apostle Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's been recreated in Jesus. The old has passed away. So the old man that was uh, under, under the power of the prince of the power of the air, the old man that was subject to the appetites of the flesh, that, that old has passed away and behold, the new has come. This is how thorough regeneration is. This is why Jesus says it's, uh, to, to, to enter in, to be, uh, enter in, to be regenerated, the, the whole process of being reborn is as if you become a whole new man or woman. In fact, John Calvin says, we can sum up this whole discourse of Christ by saying that in order um, to be his true disciples, in order to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we must become new men. And just as your birth 
your physical birth is not dependent upon you. I mean, think of that. You, you had no say in if you would enter in this world or not. It happened apart from your say-so. And in the same way, your spiritual rebirth, rebirth is not dependent upon you either. You can't earn it, as we saw in Ephesians 2. You can't check enough boxes to make yourself more deserving in order to acquire that. In fact, listen up, you don't even get to ask God in your heart. God doesn't need your permission, thank God, because if you're born in sin, the only thing that you can do is make choices according to your nature. And if your nature is that of children of wrath, you can only make decisions that will compile and make you more deserving of God's wrath. But because God has made a choice, because God has ordained it from the beginning that he would call some to himself, that he would offer new life in Christ, God doesn't need your permission or the green light to enter your heart. He doesn't. Regeneration is God's prerogative. And John says that up front in, in John chapter one, verse 13. He says this very clearly. Um, he says, for, he, he, go back in 12. He says, he gave the right to become children of God. So here's this, once children of wrath, now children of God. You see this transfer of, of, a, of the family um, who are born not of the blood, so not biologically, not of the will of the flesh, so not because you wanted it did God then create regeneration, nor the will of man, but of God. Regeneration, this new birth, is God's prerogative. And Jesus specifies here um, that regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit. I gotta pick it up here because I took too much time crying and now I gotta go. All right. Um, Verse five, when Jesus says that this birth, this new birth is Um, to be born of of water and the Spirit. Water and the Spirit. He's speaking of the Holy Spirit here, being the agent in which brings this new life. Um, And he tells us the MO, the mode of operation in the Holy Spirit's regeneration in verse eight of John chapter three. And he equates it to the wind. It says, the wind blows where it wishes. Certainly you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, here's one thing, Christian, that you need to get and and learn to love. Alert. Our God is in the heavens, and he does as he pleases. God does what pleases him, always. Always. And verse eight tells us that the spirit blows where it wishes. And it's in God's ordaining and it's in the spirit's movement and it's in the sacrifice of Christ that God chooses those to come to him and in that choice, God is glorified. Now, we're we're jumping around a lot in scripture today and and for good reason, because this is just such a, a, something we've got to understand and see how this this goes throughout the entirety of the scriptures. We've been in the New Testament. We're gonna jump in the Old Testament here in a little bit. But 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says this in verse 26. For consider your calling brothers. So he said, consider your rebirth. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were like Nicodemus. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even in things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Christian, what does this do to you? What kind of effect does this have on your heart when you know that the grace of God has found you? Not because of anything you've done, not because you were able to make really great decisions and set yourself up in, in a place where people go, oh yeah, that's, a, that's an, a great example to follow. But the grace of God has found you in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your folly, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your spiritual deadness. And God has poured out his grace upon you and has brought you to a new place. What should that do to you? Worship. Gratitude. Because it means, and I think Paul says this somewhere, I don't know exactly if it's often, he says, he, the sentiment is, what do I have that hasn't been given to me? What do you have that is not a product of God's grace? Well, you say, hey, well, I, you know, Sam, I work really hard to get where I am in my career. I put in the extra hours, I did the schooling, I did all the stuff, I made the right choices, I was strategic. I, okay, who gave you the wisdom to make those decisions? Who gave you the energy to exert yourself in that manner? Now, we're just talking, those are physical things that we're talking about. Let's transfer it to the more profound things of the spiritual things. It's God who does all things in your life. Anything you good that you have is from God. Okay, I'm getting too worked up. It is in God's... Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 1, it is God's choosing. And it's in God's choosing in which he is glorified. Now this means that if the spirit blows where it wishes, if God chooses the foolish things in the world to shame the wise, this means, and the implication of this as you keep reading your Bible, is that not only will Jews enter the kingdom of heaven, but God opens it up for Gentiles as well. Now, if you are not a Jewish person, if you do not have Jewish heritage, you ought to be rejoicing. Because that's not me. Not by natural birth am I entering the kingdom of God. God opens the door to the kingdom of God for Gentiles and Jews, both requiring this act of regeneration of being born again. And we see in Acts chapter 10, and I don't have time to read this all, all thing, from Acts chapter 10 until now, the Holy Spirit has been blowing through the nations and bringing men and women who were once aliens, not part of God's family, into God's family. And in this whole scenario here in Acts chapter 10, you see these Gentiles for the first time, God says, yeah, it's clear. My, the good news of the gospel is not just for Jews, but also for Gentiles. They too get to be born again and enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then as they receive the Holy Spirit, um, is it, it must be Paul at this point. Paul says, what's to stop these, no, it's Peter. What's to stop these men from being baptized? And they dunk them. 
Because this new life has begun. That's baptism is a sign. It points to this spiritual reality. And it's not just that. It's so much more than that. But that's one thing that baptism does. The Holy Spirit has been blowing through the nations. And baptism is an indicator of when that happens. Now, this connection of baptism in Acts chapter 10, which I didn't have time to show you, but it's there if you want to go look it up. And then this connection here where we see that, that Jesus says to be born of the water and the spirit, there, there's a sense of, there's a reason why this baptismal reference keeps coming up. If you go back to John chapter one, it's Jesus' baptism. As we keep moving forward into John chapter three, there's another episode of baptism. This remark is made, it's sandwiched between baptismal accounts. And so we gotta ask ourselves here, what is this link between regeneration and water? What's this link between um, being born again and baptism? And, and there's been debate and there's been lots of wrong ideas throughout the ages. Um, we, we love the church fathers, but not all of them get everything right. And so there's been some who have said that, that baptism is a necessity for salvation, that you cannot enter the kingdom of God if you are not marked by the water of baptism. Now, the episode that we see of, of Jesus next to the, one of the thieves that says, today you'll, you'll be with me in paradise, that sort of blows up that whole paradigm. Now, I, I will say that if, you've, if you have uh, been born again, if you, you call yourself a Christian now and you have not yet been baptized, I would say, why not? What's to stop you? What's to stop you from being identified with Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection? So you ought to be baptized. In fact, that's one of the commands of Jesus commanded his disciples. Go therefore to the nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I've commanded. So baptism, yes, we should, but is it necessary for salvation? No. The other question then is this water and the Spirit. Um, is Jesus talking about, two, is he talking about the physical birth that happens of water, like in reference of, you know, a woman's water breaks and then birth happens? And then there's this other one that's spiritual of the spirit. I, neither one of those are what Jesus is getting after. Um, what Jesus is talking about here in verse, verse five, um, in linking water and the spirit are not two different events that take place, but the same event of rebirth, of spiritual rebirth. And if, if you were to compare, I don't have time to do this, compare verse three to verse five, it would be very clear. If you take them side by side, you'd see that Jesus is speaking of one event. But what makes this even more clear is that Jesus is actually referring to an Old Testament passage that Nicodemus ought to be very, very familiar with as a rabbi, as a teacher of the Torah. And this passage that Jesus references here in linking the spirit and the water goes back to, uh, uh, no, not Ecclesiastes, to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 20 through 27. Um, Jesus is, and this is one of the reasons, if, if you hear a Christian teacher saying, hey, we don't need the Old Testament anymore, you tell them they're bonkers. Because Jesus quotes the Old Testament so much, and without the Old Testament, we have no frame of reference to understand what Jesus is really getting at. So here in Ezekiel 36, this is what it says. This is where we see the link between um, the spirit and the water. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you 
and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, in regeneration, the stone heart, the heart of the flesh, becomes a true and beating heart. You see this transformation, this newness. That is an entirely new start. And, and the, what initiates this is the sprinkling of water, the washing of the water, which is connected to the spirit, the movement of the spirit. You might be here this morning, and you're thinking, man, I could, I could go for a new start. I have made so many bad decisions. I've given my heart to so many things that don't satisfy me. Maybe you're reeling in the wake of bad decisions. You're struggling with shame, with disgrace. And if that's you, you're not alone because the people that are hearing this word spoken to them in the book of Ezekiel are very much in that same spot as well. We're told, if you keep reading further, that they, they loathe their evil ways. They, they realize the life that they were living was a life of spiritual death apart from God. And what they see in this moment is that though their sin is great, though they've been contaminated by sin, God's grace and, their kind, and his kindness is so much greater that he washes, not only washes, but gives a new spirit, gives a new heart. Now, the place where God's grace and his love is most clearly displayed is at the cross of Jesus Christ. If you want to see where the, the perfect example of love, there it is. And this is what Jesus was pointing forward to as, as we wrap up this passage in verse 13 through 15. If you flip back to John chapter uh, 3. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now Nicodemus is right when he went to Jesus and said, hey, I can tell that you are from God. But he didn't realize the capacity in which this was true. Jesus certainly was a teacher from God. He is a rabbi. Not just that, as we saw in previous weeks, he's the son of man, the special heaven-sent messenger and teacher who descends from heaven. He comes down to earth. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. And he put on flesh so that his flesh could be pierced. Jesus descended from heaven so that he could be lifted up. Now this term lifted up uh, has two meanings. In the first sense, and this is, if you were to read um, back through the Old Testament, um, and you see the, the word to, lift, to be lifted up, um, it would be referring to a, a something of glorification, of exaltation. Um, to, to be put in a place of honor as, as the one, the king who, who is lifted up and ascends and takes his seat at the throne. So that's one sense. But the other sense is referring to an event that happens in Numbers chapter 21. 
This is what Jesus is referencing explicitly. There's an episode in this season of the wilderness where God's people um, have been walking and walking and they've they're been delivered from uh, Egyptian slavery. They're waiting their opportunity to get into the promised land which God has promised Abraham. And they're in the wilderness and they're angry. They're angry with God. It's not an easy life to be in the wilderness, but it certainly is better than being in slavery. But they point their finger in God's face and say, this is your fault. We would be better off if we were back in Egypt. And they give themselves to grumbling and complaining. And listen, God, God puts things into perspective for them. And he sends a plague, essentially. He sends fiery serpents, venomous serpents, who come into the camp and they bite the people who are complaining. And those who are bitten die. They die. And the people realize that, man, this is not gonna go well for us. And, and, and they come to God and, and they say, God, we need you to do something. Moses, we need you to do something. And in this, they get convicted of their sin. They, they realize the reason why things are so bad is not God's fault, it's our fault. And they beg God to take the, the snakes away. And, and they do so in Numbers 21. Look at verse eight through nine. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. So he's crafting bronze or whatever. And, and everyone who's bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at that bronze serpent that was fixed to a pole. He would look there and he would live. God provided a solution for the problem, the poison of their grumbling, of their sin, the infirmities that we see of this, the heart of flesh that God replaced. We see this. And in the same way that as they look to the snake, the bronze snake, does anyone who looks at the cross of Christ where he was lifted up in humiliation and believe in his name, then you are saved. Then you find life. Because there at the cross... Jesus was bit by the venom of sin. All of our sin placed upon him. He took our death that we deserved. And by his wounds, we are healed. He's raised up. So here, first, he's lifted up in two ways. Yeah, lifted up on a cross, humiliation, shame, um, disgrace. But God was so pleased with the work that he did to, 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 to provide atonement for sinners like us, that God exalted him and lifted up him up, the name above every name, and seated him at the right hand of the Father. And what 1 Peter 3 tells us is that in Jesus' death and resurrection, that's where you find new life. That's where. This is the only way that you will find new life is to look to the cross of Christ, to trust in his name. Now, we, we've done a survey. We, we've seen it's, it's been God's definite plan. 
It's achieved through the death and a resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this new birth, this regeneration is applied by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is a Trinitarian effort to save sinners by God's grace. And, and Jesus is there telling Nicodemus, this, this is how it works. This is how the only way to enter the kingdom of heaven is by this Trinitarian effort to save sinners from sin. And in the moment, Nicodemus didn't get it. In the... In the the darkness of night, he couldn't see the light yet. He walks away from Jesus, and for the next two and a half, three years, he sort of watches Jesus from a distance. But in John 19, after Jesus is lifted up on the cross, one of the two people who are responsible for getting Jesus' body down preparing it for burial, placing it in a tomb. You know who it was? Nicodemus. It took Nicodemus three years to get it. After Nicodemus saw the cross, it clicked. After Nicodemus understood the significance of Jesus being lifted up, the one the one who's hung on a tree is cursed to see that Jesus was cursed for our rebellion so that we could have his blessing. Once Nicodemus sees that, everything changes. Now, as I close here, I'm sorry, I've, I've gone long today, but I wanna show you two things. It's really important. First, I wanna speak to Christians. Um, if you are a Christian, if you've been born again, um, you are a missionary that God has called you into the family and then sent you back out to tell the world what he's like. Now, if it took Nicodemus three years, we have to have a long-term vision of mission. So often, we expect, you know, that one time that we share the gospel, that's gonna be the, I mean, just take like a 30-second conversation where you share Jesus with somebody, that's gonna be the turning point in their life. And, and, and God has used those one-off conversations to do work like that. Praise be to his name for that. But there are so many more stories of it taking months and years and decades for people who do not know Jesus yet to have that moment to see Jesus on the cross. If, if your life as a missionary, the people that you um, have a heart for that don't yet know Jesus, feels like it's slow going, don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't write those people off. Of course, pray, right? Because it's the Spirit. It's not you that brings salvation. It's the Spirit who blows where he pleases, I was at a conference this past week and I was reminded of a story of a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. She wrote a book um, years ago called uh, The Secret or The Unlikely Thought or Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It's one of the best books you'll ever read. A woman who rose through the ranks of secularism, um, a lesbian in, engaged in monogamous lesbian relationships for decades. She was a literary professor. She was the head of a women's and queer theory um, section division at a, a high-ranking university. Her heart was set against God. She hated God. Her words, not mine. 
but it's true. The Bible would say she hated God. And through the faithful invitations and friendship of a pastor and his wife, for years she sat at their dining room table watching them pray and give thanks, watching them sing psalms and hymns to one another, reflecting on the goodness and the grace of their God who gave them new life in Christ. And over a long time, years and years, God moved in her heart. God changed her. God made her alive. And stories like this are real. They are true. And God is using Rosaria in some pretty powerful ways. In fact, she's one of the best speakers at this conference this week. So if, if mission is slow going, don't give up. Have the long game in mind. Now, the second thing is, um, if you've been born again, what does life look, now, look like now after new birth? Right? If you are a new man, if you are a new creation, a new woman, how then do we live? Now, John is a true preacher because, like me, when I get done preaching a sermon, I'm like, I should have been, I could have said so much more about this. And he does the same thing as he writes his epistle, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. He, he talks about the same idea. He says this, listen, um, so exhort the, uh, nope, that's the wrong, I am, oh, first, I was in 1 Peter, wrong one, 1 John. I was like, I didn't write. 1 Peter, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we are the children of God when we love God and obey his commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, this is a theme throughout the entire epistle of 1 John that gets repeated and repeated and repeated. It says, to be born again, right? he's talking about this new birth that happens by God, God's prerogative. To be born again means that you become a lover or wor and worshiper of God. To love God, too, means to obey God's word. And not just to obey it, but to love it. To love the word and obey it. Three, it tells us that in our new birth, we are to love one another. Those who have been born of the spirit, like we have, we now have a fam familial affection for, to love our brothers and sisters in the faith. Four, this new birth tells us that we have overcome the world by faith. To be born of God means that we can no longer be friends with the world. It says that anyone who's friends of the world hates God. We cannot love the things that our culture puts forward um, in, in their distorted view of things that are good and beautiful and lovely, we cannot go along with that as Christians. We are to oppose evil. We are to expose evil for what it is. And in doing that by the power of the Spirit, 
and faith, we overcome the world. If you are born of God, there is enmity between you and the world. Now, this is where things get, and I don't have time to go into this, dang it, but um, to think of being against the world while still loving your enemy. That's, that's a whole nother sermon. But live in that tension. To be born again means that you are on a new team. You can no longer wear the jersey of the culture. And as someone born again, we become ambassadors for God. This is what life looks like once you've been reborn. And the only way that this is possible is through the Spirit, not just in regeneration, not just in causing you to be born again, but the power and the strength to continue in your newness of life. Thankfully, God has given us a meal that not only reminds us of what Christ has done, the one lifted up, but it's a, a meal that reminds us that God is with us, that he gives us his spirit, he gives us sustenance that we might live according to his ways and live like the children that we are. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We thank you for your grace and your kindness. You are such a good father to us that, that you worked in adoption. We did not come born into your family, but you grafted us in. So we praise you, and we thank you that by the work of Christ, this is the only way it's possible. We love you. We thank you. We ask your spirit to empower us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.